I'm constantly trying to understand as an organizer, what is the political landscape? And then who informs that? And who actually got an opportunity to inform what your home or what your community has to say? listening to Amplifier, Raising Voices Against Rising Temperatures. We're a group of Emory students, alumni, and a professor passionate about bringing people together around the current climate crisis. We aim to equip listeners to accelerate climate action by providing accessible information, amplifying diverse voices, and highlighting the intersections of environmental issues. Join us this season as we explore the relationship between the climate crisis and COVID-19. On this episode of Amplifier, Hallie Bradshaw and Tara Jukanovich sit down with two environmental leaders from the South. Community organizer Gayla Tillman from Georgia Conservation Voters, or GCV, and Congressman Ben Diamond from the 68th District of Florida. Our discussions focus on their experiences with both bottom-up and top-down approaches for creating effective and just climate action. Gayla will start off our episode by sharing their experience with grassroots organizing in the Atlanta area and what it means to truly be in community. Following this, Congressman Diamond will share his experience as a legislator advocating at the state level for those living at the front lines of climate change. As the 2020 election looms just around the corner, these discussions are more salient than ever. So let's get started. Well, thank you again, Gayla, for joining us on the Amplifier podcast. I know you have so much coming up with the census and the election, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So I wanted to start just diving into who you are and your background growing up in Atlanta, learning in Atlanta, and how that led you to becoming a community organizer. Yes, absolutely. Um, so my name is Gayla, pronouns they, them, all of them, honestly. Um, born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I was, and I say that because being born and raised in the South, in the Deep South, informs so much of my politics, mm -hmm. mainly because when people think of the South, they think kind of like an eyesore. They think of this backwards, racially insensitive, super problematic space. And that's not how I think of my home, which of course I'm biased because it's my home, but also that's just, as I've grown as an organizer, my idea of regional politics has completely shifted. Um, so as I was coming up, my parents are super dope people. And so my first introduction, I think to community was when like my mom would have us serving meals to shelterless people in the park. Um, she would do other like community service things, but those were kind of like my introduction to being directly in community with people that are on the opposite end of classism and racism and kind of like the combination of all those things. Um, 
So, and then of course, as I went up in high school, I was doing community service. And then I got my official start as an actual organizer. When I was in college, I graduated from Georgia State University with a degree in African-American studies. So not only was I studying the history of Black political thought, of Black history and Black culture, I was also seeing it firsthand. So I got my start in housing justice. When the city, when the neighborhood is being flooded with a new population of people that is not Black, that are not POC, that are not of working class status, that is another display of how systemic racism, systemic and systematic racism impacts communities. So, And how did your background bring you to working at Georgia Conservation Voters? Intertwined in that is environment and that because I'm Black and Southern, a lot of my family are farmers, fish, all the things. So like at a very early age, I have a, a love of nature and water and all the things. Like the planet is not something that was secondary to how I interact with the world. Like it's not like people, then the planet. Like though, if anything, they were intertwined. Mm-hmm. So of course I got my start at GCV because my understanding of the climate crisis is not individual. Like I'm not thinking of, you know, oh, if we all just pitch together and recycle or oh, if we just all pitch together and get some bamboo toilet paper, everything will be fine. And it's like, those are wonderful steps. Those are wonderful tactics. However, there needs to be a substantial policy in place to actually protect and preserve the planet and all of its inhabitants because like, there are some people that are like, man, what does sea otters, like, what do whales got to do with me? And I'm just like, friend, there's this thing called ecosystems. <laughs> um, so like, yeah, so if anything, because now after like, just really trying to bring all of this back, I'm thinking about how my understanding of an organizer, is just so much of understanding what it means to be a human a human in community with other people, but also where's my placement within the ecosystem. Could you talk a little bit more about how you are fostering community amongst the people who are already doing this work? Sometimes I feel like it's a a bit segmented, uh, which is unfortunate, but yeah, if anything, this has just taught me how much power comes from good people getting into, in the words of John Lewis, getting into good trouble together and what that means. And how how do you do that? What's your theory of change, of trying to move things forward and and try to touch on all those issues? Yeah, um, so I don't have a super formal or fancy theory of change. (laughs) Honestly, it's always changing. So um, a little fun fact about me, one of my favorites, I'm a huge fan of animation and one of my favorite movies as a kid is this movie called Robots. Um, I would go into a whole spiel about what that movie is about, but it's my favorite thing in the world. Um, and one of the taglines in the movie by like one of the big um, ins- inspirations for the protagonist is see a need, fill a need. And so often that's kind of like how I understand my proximity to organizers, but also a specific campaign. Because the thing about it is we all have our roles to fill. However, that does not mean that we should not be constantly assessing like, where is my strength and how do I fill this need? 
And do I have the capacity to fill this need? I'm constantly trying to understand as an organizer, what is the political landscape? And then who informs that? And who actually got an opportunity to inform what your home or what your community has to say? And with that, what drew you to to affecting that change through more grassroots organizing, if that's what you would describe this as? Absolutely. Um, If anything, just full transparency, I don't think I have the skill set of the other forms of organizing as far as like policy and things like that, mainly because like, because my introduction to organizing was people, literal direct contact with people, like, I think that's something that's just really stuck in my brain. Like, I'm just constantly thinking about how, just like how to better connect with other human beings, because I think that's where a lot of solutions to systemic issues get lost. Because there are some times where people are just like, oh, we're going to try this top-down approach to this issue, to this problem. And then it doesn't actually reach the bottom where, or let me not say bottom, but like the frontline communities that it needs to. So for me, so much of this approach comes from the direct contact, but also what it means. Because the thing about it is when you directly contact someone, you may have triple, four times, five times the impact on that one person in several families' lives. Whereas if you operate from top down or if you you operate from like, oh, I'm just going to go for this legislation, there's there's too many cracks. Um, I'll, I'll say in my opinion, because like when you're not when you're not doing the grassroots, you're missing the stories. So much of the magic of organizing, so much of the beauty, uh, the deliciousness, as other organizers would say, is that the story connecting to the solution is what makes it worth it. And when you do interact, whether you or GCD interacts with the top-down approaches, have you noticed certain types of policy that are more effective when it comes to the environment or environmental justice and what goes into making the most effective versions of it, even if it can't encompass all the effort that needs to be done? When it comes to legislation in Georgia, because this, because this state was founded for and by white men, white cisgendered men, that is often who is listened to. That is often who is in the in the room writing the legislation and often who is editing the legislation. So for instance, if in your legislation you want to say um, you want to allocate funds towards something, if that allocation of funds has to come from like the the state's budget or something like that, you're likely going to get some pushback. If you say, oh, I want this, if you specifically name, I want this legislation to serve black, brown, uh, low income, working class, or queer and trans people, they're going to run into some problems. Like, I just think that in terms of, of efficacy, like, I think the most effective is always when it's general, when it's when it's general enough to address the issue and to acknowledge the issue, but it's not specific enough to actually address those frontline communities that need that solution. What would you tell young people to do if you could talk to 
people who are voting or they're going to be voting in the future or maybe they're just interested in working at the community level and supporting their community, what would you advise them to do to be better climate justice, social justice advocates? Well, first things first, I would ask that person to realize who's in their community, honestly. Like, if you're just like, wow, I care so passionately about recycling, or I care passionately about people not drilling into the coast of Georgia, like, there are people in your neighborhood or somewhere in the vicinity that is that is doing work specifically around that thing and it's a matter of like connecting with them specifically in relation to the environment i would say look up who your community emergency team is most cities have like a community emergency training or community emergency lead or something like that so especially if you are on the coast or someone that experience or in a community that experiences a lot of floods and displacement and a lot of environmental problems like there are positions within your city that are dedicated to whose job it is to actually address these problems and if you feel like whoever is in your city is not addressing them properly once again that is your time to put on your organizer hat and be like, all right, so I'm about to call everyone in my phone and let everyone know what's going on, or I'm about to go on Twitter and I'm about to make a thread. <laughs> like whatever it is that you need to feel that you are having your voice heard and having and listening and being in community with other folks. Like that's that's how you impact change. Um, and, oft, and also if you are an activist of color, unfortunately there is a lot of erasure of activists of color or organizers of color from social justice spaces and kind of like how they're reported. Um, and I just encourage you not to be discouraged by that because people like myself, people like you <laughs> are moving all the time and doing work. And just because we don't get like acknowledged for it doesn't mean that like we're not there. Before finishing our interview, Gayla had a final note for all of us listening. A reminder to practice empathy for each other as we head into this next election. Regardless of who is elected in November or to come, police brutality is still very much so a reality in this country. And it's not just going to magically fade. So if you're just like, oh, if you don't vote, I don't want to talk to you ever. Like, so you have to ask yourself, do I actually believe Black Lives Matter if the only time I care about Black people is when I want their votes. <laughs> like, do I actually care about the input and the thoughts of young people if the only time I engage them is when I want their votes? Like, if you see someone that's like not a voter and they don't know what's going on, that may be a point of access for you and not a point of judgment. If you don't vote for anything, vote in public service commission races, especially because like, just think of your energy bill. Because like, even if you don't have an energy bill, either your parents do, or you are at work or at school, in some way you are paying for it. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, like I'm just, I'm just like, if you vote for anything, just, just because there are two on the ballot. <laughs> it's like, if you do anything, please vote in those. <laughs> the upcoming election and the world of climate policy in general can often be overwhelming. As we head towards November 3rd, many of us feel exhausted. But it is important to remember that politics at the national level isn't the only way to affect change. 
Now more than ever, we are seeing the real power local politicians and policies have on our lives and that of our surrounding community. Climate action is no exception to this. To adequately address the growing crisis, we will need strong, sustainable, and just action at all levels. As we go from the community to the state level, we're crossing the border of Florida, where Congressman Ben Diamond represents the 68th district in the Florida House of Representatives. In this role, he has served on multiple committees, including the Natural Resources and Public Land Subcommittee and the Subcommittee on Civil Justice. We sat down with the congressman as he prepared for the upcoming election. Well, thanks again for the opportunity to be on um, your podcast. I just admire so much the work you all are doing. Um, so I grew up in Florida. I'm a native Floridian, and um, I grew up surrounded by politics at a young age because my grandfather, um, Dante Fassell, served in government, first in the state legislature here, and then he served in the United States uh, Congress. He represented Miami and the Florida Keys um, in Congress for almost 30, 38 years, almost 40 years. He was very interested um, in environmental issues. Um, he was instrumental in efforts to try to protect the Everglades, to try to protect Biscayne Bay. And so, and, and he loved, he loved, you know, being a, being a Floridian, he loved being out on the water. He would take me fishing as a kid. And, and those are issues that, you know, the, those are things that I still love to do. I mean, we're still out on the water a lot. I live in Pinellas County, Florida, which is a peninsula on a peninsula. So um, we're surrounded by water and we're, you know, these are very real issues for us living here. I mean, we really are on the front lines of these challenges with regard to um, climate change. I started working when I finished law school in um, state government because I was interested in government in Tallahassee. I worked there for four years uh, for our state chief financial officer. And then, um, and then I started volunteering on different environmental campaigns and was involved in a campaign um, to provide a dedicated source of money in state government for land and water conservation um, through a constitutional amendment. And that's what led me to uh, run for office. So it's just sort of been, you know, a part of my ethos, I guess, since I was a kid. And I know one of the big projects you worked on before you were working as a representative was with the BP oil spill. Could you talk a little bit more about what it was like working on that and what that looks like in your community? Sure. So that was an, an unbelievable catastrophe, obviously, for our state and nation. I was working in Tallahassee then for our state chief financial officer. Um, and, you know, we had businesses in coastal communities um, that were just tremendously impacted by the spill. You know, it, it was just, it was just a very scary experience um, for our state. The environmental impact was obviously profound. The economic impact was profound. And um, I, I think we're still learning about the environmental impact. It's interesting. I mean, here we have one of, at the University of South Florida in St. Petersburg, we have one of the best colleges of marine science in the nation. And they're doing some really interesting um, research still on the impact of the BP oil disaster. You know, it's a reminder because there's always sort of political interest in offshore drilling. 
Um, it's always like right around the corner. Um, and uh, um, it's amazing how, how quickly we forget, you know, that that can happen. Large environmental catastrophes, such as the BP oil spill, often trigger significant response and policy. In your experience, what goes into making strong climate policy, and specifically policy that is just and addresses frontline communities such as your own? Well, I mean, right now it's very frustrating to me in Florida because, as we were saying earlier, you know, we really feel like we're on the front lines of this crisis. My district includes um, neighborhoods that are flooding, even, you know, you know, flooding is sort of a, a relatively common problem for some of the neighborhoods in my district, like Shore Acres and others. Um, but we really have had no statewide leadership in Tallahassee on this issue. Um, we've had a lot of good work, however, that started in the regional and local level. So we've had cities um, come together, um, counties come together and form regional resiliency coalitions to start trying to talk about, okay, well, what can local government be doing um, on this issue? You know, I think local governments really feel like they're on the front lines of this crisis because they're paying the costs of the infrastructure and the things that we need, whether it's seawalls or, or, or otherwise. Um, but we have a real patchwork approach. And of course, the politics have gotten in the way, you know, under the prior under the prior administration of, in Florida, of Rick Scott, when he was our governor, his cabinet agencies weren't even, they weren't even allowed to use the words climate change. And so, you know, we, we are trying to move past that. We're trying to get to the point where this is not like a red or blue issue or a Republican or a Democrat issue but this is an issue that we're all committed to work on because we can all see the science and we can all understand the impact it's gonna have on our state. With this idea of Florida having this patchwork, this, this patchwork model, why do you find that the top-down approach is more effective or do you find it most effective to creating climate action as a legislator? Well, it's not so much, I would say, it's not so much looking for a top-down approach as it is looking for some statewide leadership. What I've been advocating for is this idea that sort of like there's a national assessment done by the United States government of the impacts of climate change on our nation, that we do a statewide assessment. So, you know, it impacts everything. I mean, it impacts our transportation planning. It impacts our emergency management planning. It impacts our, our you know, pocketbook issues, particularly with regard to insurance. We need to start thinking about this as a, as a state issue, that the whole state needs to be working on together, as opposed to sort of just like, the city of St. Pete is doing this, and the city of Miami Beach is doing that. A lot of climate action and a lot of climate impacts are really intersectional. So I guess my question is, have you found that there is a really strong intersection between social issues and environmental issues? And if so, how does that look like in your work? Yeah, absolutely. There's just no doubt about it. I mean, there are poor communities, communities of color um, that seem to be disproportionately impacted by these issues. And there's the 
there's all these issues with regard to how communities of color and, and poorer people are um, unable to access uh, health in, you know, healthcare in the same way that, that many of us are. And so, you know, the environmental impacts of um, pollution and we're seeing this, you know, certainly now during the pandemic in terms of the number of, number of people that are dying of COVID who are African-American or, you know, um, there's just big inequities in our society that have been exacerbated. And, and we see this, you know, we're seeing this on these issues. There's just no doubt about it. This is changing topics a little bit, but I know on your mind and on all of our minds, the upcoming election and you represent a swing district, a, a pivotal area in Florida. So how have you found it best to discuss climate change in the area you represent? And is there a way that you can tailor your, your message of environmentalism to different audiences to have greater success? We have to get ourselves back to a place in government where we are willing to listen to science and to you know, expertise and, um, and, and deal with problems in a real way. And I think the pandemic shows that. I mean, I think the pandemic is sort of a, another example of that. You know, there's been a lot of a sort of polarized reaction to the pandemic, obviously. But I mean, I think for the most part, people appreciate those leaders that are willing to you know, approach approach problems seriously, and this is a, this is a, exactly one of those problems. I mean, so you know, so I think we just got to start by trying to find well, what are the areas in this debate that we can agree on, and and let's start there. There there can be agreement on the fact that that we need to have a resiliency plan, that there's going to be costs associated uh, with the development of that plan. Um, that we want to come up with a way to, to plan uh, future growth and buildings in a smart way. Um, and then we need to you know, work to sort of convince people that um, we can't keep doing what we're doing and expect a different result. There's a lot of new technologies and new job opportunities you know, in solar and renewable energy and we shouldn't be afraid of these types of changes. We should be embracing them. That's what this is all about. You know, I mean, yes, this is a serious threat to our state, to our nation, but it's also a tremendous opportunity. And I think if we start talking about it that way, I think we can get past the political divide and um, start trying to find some consensus around, around how we're going to approach these problems. Our last two questions are, more just some insights from a congressman and what you think. So our first one is, as we go into this next election, what advice do you have to voters and what should we be thinking of as we vote in this very important 2020 election? Well, first of all is to vote. These elections really matter. There's tremendous consequences. We either are going to elect people that care about these issues, that want to learn about these issues and work on these issues, or there's going to be a whole bunch of naysayers out there that are going to get into office. And um, if you haven't voted yet, please make sure you have a plan to vote and vote. Um, these elections are always extremely close uh, in my state in Florida. 
um, I think Georgia this year is going to be close too. I, you know, I just encourage everybody listening to make a plan to vote. I think I want to end this on maybe more general note. If you have any wisdom to offer to the next generation of leaders, what would you say? Well, I think what's amazing about like people coming up now is just there's such opportunity. There's such a there's such opportunity because of technology, and there's so much information out there. And um, um, I think it's still really important to pick an issue or pick something to work on to really focus on and to really develop expertise in because um, and, and to develop a set of skills, a set of professional skills in a way of looking at problems and thinking about problems. I mean, what I'm seeing through my service in the Florida legislature is that those, those leaders that are most effective at working through issues uh, are coming to it with a, a, t a training in um, how they think about problems and how they analyze problems. You know, they, they, um, they're a lawyer or they're an accountant or they've run a successful business you know, and so, um, and they bring those skills to government. And it's an awesome thing to see. And so, I mean, I think that there's a lot of value to sort of, in terms of advice to the next generation of leaders. I mean, if even if you are interested in government or public policy or social issues, like many of your listeners may be, you know, there's still a lot of value to having a set of professional skills that you bring to those problems. There's this emerging generation of, of people that are going to be taking over um, and making decisions in local, state, and national government. And so um, it's a very exciting time to be involved. And I just want to thank you all again for the chance to be with you today. Thank you to Gayla Tillman and Congressman Ben Diamond for taking the time to speak with us on today's episode. To find out more about Gala's work and what is on your ballot, visit Georgia Conservation Voters at gcvoters.org. You can also hear more from Gala during next week's episode on environmental justice. To learn more about Congressman Diamond's platform and to follow his 2020 campaign, please visit his website at votebendiamond.com. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can learn more about us on our website and YouTube channel, Emory Climate Talks. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we will be discussing Hurricane Katrina, which hit the Gulf Coast in 2005, becoming one of the most deadly and costly storms in U.S. history, and one of the most salient examples of minority communities being disproportionately threatened by severe weather and climate change. In other words, environmental racism. Join Hallie Bradshaw as she speaks with Troy Robertson, regional organizer at the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy and Gayla Tillman, Civic Engagement Organizer for Georgia Conservation Voters, as they explore the intersectional struggle for climate justice on the next episode of Amplifier. Today's episode was reported and produced by Hallie Bradshaw and Tara Jukanovich. The music was provided by Zola Berger-Schmitz and graphics by Tyler Stern.